Yes, all of them. All of the memories are food memories. And there's, like, there's context, though, too. Like, the, the like what you were saying that, you know, that sometimes you taste something and it, t- it brings you to a memory that has nothing to do with the actual food. You know, and that's it. That's a, It's about the context of that memory's creation. So, like, it's, it's not just that you're remembering a dish that you really liked, right? You're remembering eating that dish in your grandmother's house. And you remember what the room looked like and, and what her voice sounded like and how it felt to be in your grandmother's house, you know, being fed and being nourished and, and being loved. You're listening to Amuse Bouche, a podcast where we muse about food. I'm Kehlani Palmasano, and each episode I sit with passionate foodies and experts to explore what they find inspiring about the world of food. Because food is so much more than what's on the plate. It feeds our bodies, our minds, our souls. It connects us to one another, not just in the present, but also reaches into our past and, as we talk about in this episode, carries us into the future. This week, I sit down with Kate Morgan to discuss food and memories, how food can elicit memories and can also create new ones. Kate Morgan is a freelance journalist near Philadelphia writing about science, food, and travel. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, BBC, Savor, and a ton of other publications. At the beginning of the pandemic, Kate wrote a beautiful essay in the New York Times called My Grandmother Knew a Secret, Survival Can Be Stored in a Jar. The essay introduces us to Kate's grandmother, Irene, the daughter of Italian immigrants who lived a life of frugality and, quote, counted her wealth in jars of preserved fruit. Though Kate herself didn't live as lean of a life as her grandmother's, when the pandemic hit, she instinctively channeled all of the lessons her grandmother taught her, everything from building a greenhouse and growing produce from seed to preserving the fruits of her labor. Kate, at what point did you become aware that you were actually living out the lessons that your grandmother taught you? <laughs> I mean, I've been living out her lessons my whole life. You know, she she was the kind of person who knew the right way to do everything even if she didn't. I mean, <laughs> so she was usually right, you know, but but in the last couple of days of her life, I I will never forget she spent almost all her time, you know, in a hospital bed in her living room. And so we were in the kitchen and she was from the living room in her hospital bed, actively on her deathbed, yelling out instructions for what we should be doing in the kitchen, <laughs> yelling out recipes and telling us what to add and what to do, you know. But with that essay, you know, it's hard now to remember what it really felt like, you know, a year ago, how uncertain and and scary those first weeks were, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. We've been talking about it a lot, right? Because we're coming up on on the one year, we've hit the one year anniversary. But right. like, it's almost, it's almost tough to put your, actually put yourself back in, in that, you know, that, that zone of feeling like, I just don't know what's going to happen next. And so, you know, we were seeing all these headlines about food shortages and, you know, my grocery store, I live in rural Pennsylvania, you know, so it's my grocery store, I just assumed would be fine. But even that was looking, you know, a little lean. And I, I think I think there, there was like this part of me that I'm not even totally sure I realized was there that was just like, OK, I know what to do. Uh, I know what comes next. I know the steps. I've got the skills. I know how to make sure that we stay fed. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that like 
that was my experience of ancestral memory. So there, there's a line right at the end of that essay that I know you really liked. Do you have do you want to read that line? Yes, it was it was months ago while reporting a story about migrating bison in Yellowstone National Park. I spoke to a biologist who told me bison and people are the same. We're not like butterflies or salmon born with a map in our heads, he said. Mammals like us, we learn from our mothers. We learned from who learned from their mothers all the way back. Yeah. I mean, that's how it works, right? Like you learn these skills and and you learn the recipes and you don't know while it's happening that you're being taught. And you certainly don't know that you're what you're being taught is is how to survive. Yeah, it was very it's very casual. Like you're just picking it up because you're watching people or right. you're, you know, you're just kind of immersed in it and that's mm-hmm. the day to day. But it gets stored. You remember. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So when the grocery stores were becoming lean and bare as you were saying, there kind of was this feeling of uh I don't know when I'll be able to go back to the grocery store, mm-hmm. which caused a hyper scarcity moment, I think, in everyone where it was this need to stockpile. Right. And it's like it sounded like your grandmother stockpiled a lot. And I had I had some depression era relatives as mm-hmm. well. Um, and and some Italian immigrants in my own family who like were all about the stockpiling and we used to laugh right. and joke about it. But when like your essay kind of talks about like when the pandemic hit, like it was, oh, got to build out the the pantry, got to get yeah. like, <laughs> I well, remember enjoying like organizing canned foods, you know. Yes. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like it's not even just about having the food and knowing that the food is there and and that you know okay the pantry's stocked uh, it that it that is what it is but it, but it's more than that because i think it's also about there's another line in that essay that says you know that everything could go to hell but at least we could eat yeah you know, yeah and that's and that's what it is too that it and it was emotional for me so it wasn't i don't think i ever got fully into the like i mean i i remember what you're talking about that feeling of like when will i be able to go back to the store you know right. and i bought like a 50 pound bag of sugar and a 50 pound bag of flour and you know i did all that but i it was like less about the sort of prepper mentality i think and and when i like reflect on it now it was about soothing my myself and and about making sure that i could hold on to this idea that like okay there might be dark days coming but like i can make us a great meal yeah oh that's, and that's that, sweet and that i think is is part of what drove it for my grandmother too like it really was i mean even think so for our family like you know even events like a funeral, right? It's like mm-hmm. the lowest point in your, you know, family life, but they would without fail be followed by a luncheon. And, yeah. and so like it, it's a, I think it's, there's something that's like deeply soothing about the idea that like everything can go to hell, but at least you can eat. Yeah. Food is a very comforting, it's a very comforting thing. And to have food, uh, is feel it feels comforting of like everything is super uncertain, but what is certain is that there's you know a stockpile of <laughs> sauce and canned yeah. goods in the um in the pantry. Like uh, I don't know what to do. I can't help, but I can make pasta. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So tell me a little bit about setting up the garden. Were you already kind of planning a garden? Because I know like it, the pandemic kind of hit right when gar- you would one would be planning a garden. Right. Yeah. So normally um, we travel a lot. 
So uh, in 2019, we um, converted a van, my boyfriend TJ and I, and uh, spent the rest of the year driving it around the country. And the plan for 2020, which feels ridiculous now to even talk about, but was to do it again. Uh, we were going to you know, get in our van and cruise through Canada. And we were going to explore Canada and drive all the way to Alaska um, and then hop the ferry and, and come back. And then all of that got derailed. And so, you know, all of that to say, normally I don't have a garden because we're gone for the bulk of the growing season. And even in years prior, you know, even before we were doing like four month, five month long road trips, we just we just travel a lot. So while I would have like some pots of herbs or whatever on the on the deck, I never did like a full blown, you know, let's till till up the ground and put in some veggies. Like it wasn't like that. But then this happened and we kind of were like, well, I I guess we're going to be here. So we got um, we have some chickens, but we added some new baby chickens to our flock. And, um, you know, we were like, "Okay, let's let's build a garden, you know, (laughs) and so uh, which is everything that I documented, you know, in that essay. We we just sort of got really into it and and put this garden in. Um, And I uh I it wasn't it was like planned and also not planned. So my garden ended up. Like last year's garden ended up being this like crazy impenetrable jungle tangle, you know, in in like the best way. It was a very, very productive, you know, jungle. But I I just grew like way too many things. I have this great greenhouse um, near me that that has this like crazy selection of all these like heirloom veggies and all kinds of like weird, cool stuff. And so I went in, you know, for like one thing. And then, of course, it was like, oh, well, that looks awesome. Like, oh, you know, white eggplants. I got to grow some of those. Like, but no, like, you know, it was just all these these different varieties. And it was like, well, I'll just grow one of those. But like want it that adds up really fast and so like next thing you know i've got like 15 heirloom tomato plants all of which grew to like eight feet tall and put out dozens of tomatoes wow and so (laughs) did you did you can those tomatoes and i did yeah i canned like a lot of tomatoes but also like if i had been thinking about it more strategically i would have done you know like three or four heirloom tomatoes so that so that i can you know we can eat the heirlooms and i can put some up but then like a bunch of roma tomatoes so that i can make a lot of sauce or make you know what i mean but I did. I wasn't thinking about it strategically. I was thinking about it more like that seems fun to grow. And so, <laughs> and so this year now I'm now that I'm in a position where like I'm starting my seedlings again and everything, I'm trying to look at it more, you know, I'm trying to plan a little bit more thoroughly. Be a little bit in more terms practical of too. Yeah. yeah. Like what what will we actually eat? And like what do I need to grow in quantity? And how do I avoid growing four hundred squashes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, unless like, did you share any with your neighbors or? Oh, yeah. We're lucky where we live because it's rural. It's one of those places where, you know, our neighbors, your neighbors are your lifeline when you live oh, yeah. Yeah. sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And so, yeah, we shared a lot. And uh, I couldn't it, it got to a point where, you know, I couldn't ask them to like, oh, hey, could you water the garden for me or could, you know, whatever, because no one other than me could get in. Because it was such, it was like a secret garden situation where there was like only one path that I that could lead through the garden because yeah. I had put so many plants in such a small amount of space. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it was. Uh, I we shared a lot. Everything got eaten. Um, you know, I'm down to like a couple of cans of tomatoes now. So. Oh, so it lasted you the year. There you go. Oh yeah, that's yeah, cool. 
That's yep. awesome. And so the canning recipes, were you using some of the recipes that your grandmother had passed down? I was. And some of the stuff, it was, you know, just trying to kind of figure it out on my own. Some of it was her recipes. Um, There were a couple and this was so cool. So after I wrote that essay in The New York Times, I got like a ton of emails from people telling me that they had similar memories or saying like, oh, my grandmother did this too, or, you know, which was just really neat. But a lot of those people shared recipes with me from their grandparents. Yeah, which was really, really neat. So I tried some of those and um, I made some weird stuff. I like pickled a lot of garlic scapes and I made a lot of like dilly beans, like pickled green beans and some spicy ones and some different Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of, you know, experimenting recipe wise too. That's really fun. That's fun. So it was a little bit of like your comfort foods that you were familiar with growing up, a little bit of like things that you picked up along the way. Now, your partner, does he have any uh, food memories that you need to reconcile in the household? Yeah, um, he does. I mean, we we um, do. So he has he has stuff. He basically grew up in this restaurant um, that his dad managed when he was a kid. And so he's got a lot of, you know, really fond food memories related to that. So like, you know, nothing he coleslaw is a big one. Apparently this restaurant had the best coleslaw in the entire world and like Mm. nothing will ever come close. Um, Jello is a really big one. So he loves <laughs> Jello more than anyone, like certainly more than any adult that I know. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's a big part of it is because it reminds him of that time in his life. And there's, oh, there's actually, okay, so there's this like Jello based dish. And it's, he, he, like, we think that it's Jello blended with vanilla ice cream, like specifically Briar's vanilla ice cream. We've tried it. Like we've tried to do it a couple of times. I've Googled it. We've tried some like weird, you know, 1950. It's, it's strikes me as like a very 1950s thing. It's like gotta be, you know what I mean? Oh, very mid-century. Yeah. Yeah. And I just like have not been able to get it right. So if anybody is listening to this and knows what I'm talking about, like, please get into (laughs) it. Did it have a name or were you just like jello ice cream mixture? We don't, yeah, we don't know. Like, yeah, but he he just has this like clear memory of it. So, oh, and he also he has this thing for acai bowls, but like oh. really specifically from this one place in San Diego. So he he lived there for a while and he would get an acai bowl from this spot every single day. And wow. so, you know, we've like had them other places, but it's like it's just not the same, you know. So so when we were on that road trip in 2019, we went to San Diego and the very first thing we did, like literally had been in the city less than half an hour, was go to this acai bowl spot and get an acai bowl. And it was the most satisfying moment because it was like exactly right. Yes, you know, it like was exactly just the way what he remembered, remembered it. Yes. yes. I have stuff like that. I mean, I think we all have stuff like that, right? Like I yeah, I, we do. I spent like a year in Rome and um like a decade ago. And there's this kebab place. And I I I don't even know if it exists anymore. I have no idea. But like the next time I find myself in Rome, it's the first place I'm going because I just want to taste that again. 
Oh, I, yeah. I love when like food becomes this like a destination that you yeah. like when you return to a place, you got to like, you know, mm. I remember coming to like moving back to South Jersey from Philadelphia, though I had lived it's literally only 15 minutes away over the bridge to like my mom's house. There were things that I couldn't wait to share with my husband to be like, oh, you're a Jersey boy now. Listen, we got to go to like this diner. We have to go specifically to Johnson's Farm, go blueberry picking like we need to do these like really specific things and uh yeah and to recreate them in our homes is like really really difficult (laughs) it is it's it's really difficult but but I think that even the trying triggers that memory right yeah so that like it serves the purpose you want it to serve even and it I, there's also something fun in the, in the fact that like, you know, you're like, well, it's not quite right, but it's almost there, you know, and then you want to try again and again and again. With your with your grandmother's recipes, are there ones that you're still like trying to master or ones that you yeah. feel like, oh, I have a really good handle on this one? So, yes, pepper jelly and peaches. And it's oh. funny because... Like in terms of flavor profiles and like process, they're just so different, you know? Yeah. So like the pepper jelly is really complex and it has all these like layers of flavors and that like these different, you know, slightly spicy or sweet or like, you know, this weird umami thing that like just works all together. And there's like 4,000 recipes for pepper jelly out there in the world and a lot of them are great. Yeah. But none of them are my nans and I don't actually have her recipe. So I'm I'm still working on getting that right and I like haven't nailed it yet but I'll whatever I'll get we'll get there. Yeah. And then the peaches that's a flavor that I think I will just always associate with her because she would buy just crates and crates of like, you know, bruised peaches because she never paid full price for anything. Seriously, I don't think ever anything in her whole life. I would argue that the bruised peaches are sweeter though. Yes, so so would she. <laughs> so, but so she would buy, you know, crates and crates of them like right at the height of, you know, South Jersey peach season and you don't do anything to them, right? Like so like there's no recipe. You just peel them and you can them. But when you open that jar in February and that peach tastes exactly like it did in July. Like there's just there is nothing like that like pure That's time travel. Flavor. Yes, <laughs> because yes, like, it is. to to get it cuz you know I've had canned peaches before and I I did a batch of um some like peach jam. It was like rosemary and peach jam mm-hmm. over the summer when yeah. you know peaches were in season. It's just not the same. So it is to to be able to uh maintain the flavor and quality of a July peach in yes. February, that's that's pretty impressive. But it but it is time travel, and that but that's what food m- memories are. Like that's what we're talking about. Is it's, oh, ti- yeah. it's time travel. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. It's it's taking you back to all of your favorite holidays. It's all of those favorite family moments. It's specific trips. You know, yeah. it's yeah. And and in terms of the like food, do the does food for you? bring up other memories like when you you know open up a bottle of sauce does it transport you to something that has nothing to do with food yes yes I mean I think that like yes all of them all of the memories are food memories right like <laughs> I, that's what I was you know I, it's what I was saying like I come from a food family and I think 
most of us do. Like, I don't yeah. think it has anything to do with like, you know, yeah, it's because, you know, of the Italians. But but I think every culture has that same relationship to food. Right. So like most families are food families. So like events and your get togethers and everything, it all centers around what's on that table. And then when you talk about that event later, like, you know, you say like, hey, oh, remember so-and-so's wedding? Like they had that amazing brisket, you know, oh, or like, yes. or, and even when it's bad, like, oh, like, do, like, remember that lunch we went to and they served those crabs that were just all right, you know, like you remember that stuff. And, and I, and food memories are just so powerful and, and like it, you know, this has been studied, right? So like psychologists and neuroscientists have looked at this and it's like the more, stimuli, the more senses are involved, the more evocative that that memory is. And, and so food memories, they involve, you know, your your sense of taste and your sense of sight and your sense of smell. And so they like really stick, <laughs> you know, and so they're they're triggered all the time. Like you taste or, or you smell something and you think, oh, my God, I remember this or it transports me. And even if you can't actually conjure the memory like that, that happens. Like, oh, I, I've, I've had this before, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And there's, like there's context though, too. Like the, the, like what you were saying that, you know, that sometimes you taste something and it, t- it brings you to a memory that has nothing to do with the actual food, you know, and that's it. That's a, it's about the context of that memory's creation. So like, it's, it's not just that you're remembering a dish that you really liked, right? You're remembering eating that dish in your grandmother's house and you remember what the room looked like and and what her voice sounded like and how it felt to be in your grandmother's house you know being fed and being nourished and, and being loved oh yeah absolutely and it's you know and like you were saying before like the seasonality of it it brings you back to almost like oh what it, then it, it's not just specific memories it's like summer times at a grandmother's house or mm-hmm. like you're out of school you know what programs were on tv at the time uh <sighs> the 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 sound of cicadas or the sound of crickets or the feeling of like that kind of like damp humidity that Jersey gets. <laughs> like we yes. have a lot of moisture in the air for some reason, uh, always, oh. even in the winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very it specific things, climate. Yeah. It makes things grow really well. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fun with food because food is so tied to our traditions. It's tied to our memories, but with every generation comes new like variations of those takes on family recipes. Um, I know you travel a lot. You pick up a lot of recipes. You had a lot of uh, readers of the New York Times send you their recipes. And then yeah. suddenly they then become woven into your personal menu. And then you share that with your friends and family moving forward. And like, you're kind of, it's like, we're living old memories, but we're also creating new memories simultaneously. And, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about your partner commenting on the things that you were getting wrong with certain recipes. (laughs) Do you mind sharing that with us? No. Oh, hold on. Let me, I gotta, I gotta pull it up. I don't, I texted him to be like, I, what, like, what do you like other than Jell-O? But so, <laughs> uh, oh, my grandmother. Okay. I don't know where he, he thinks he gets the right. How dare he tell me that I'm not making my nan's iced tea correctly. But I, so, okay. Actually, we'll get back to him, you know, being a, a jerk in a second. But, <laughs> but uh, so my nan's iced tea is 
iconic. I mean, it was like there was always, always, always a pitcher of iced tea in the refrigerator. And it was very specific. And I'm I guarantee you that some of the specific like the specificity of that taste came from the fact that she was making it in like a 40 year old Tupperware pitcher. Oh, it was seasoned. So like, yes. Oh, yeah. So some of the flavor is definitely like degrading plastic, you know, but like other than that. <laughs> but so we my cousins and I have this sort of ongoing, like, well-intentioned war over what is in the iced tea, like, which, what thing flavors the iced tea correctly. So, like, some of my cousins are firmly in the lemongrass camp. Oh. And then, and then there's, there's also lemon geranium camp. And I, I will go to my grave. This is the hill I will die on. It's lemon balm that makes it taste great. But so we like had this big, you know, battle over like, no, it's lemongrass. No, it's lemon balm. Like, you know, no, it's, oh, lemon verbena. No, it's lemon verbena, you know, but, but it's lemon balm. But so, (laughs) but I asked, so we, I asked my dad and we asked our uncles, you know, my grandmother had three sons. And so we asked them, and they confirmed that it is, in fact, all three. <laughs> she, all three. <laughs> she, she would just use whichever one there was more of in the backyard. At the time. <laughs> That's funny. So wait, maybe like did each resonate with you, with your cousins differently? Like, I think it might. I, like maybe that. Yes. So then like when when my cousin Anne-Marie makes it with lemon verbena, to her that tastes like Nan's iced tea. Oh, and wow. when I make it with lemon balm, like that is what tastes like Nan's iced tea. But it's really funny because I don't know what like batch my boyfriend had, but it must not have been the lemon balm one because he swears that I don't make it right. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's so it's Schrodinger's iced tea. They're all yes. reality at the same time until it's measured. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. But he also said, let's see. Oh, Chinese food. Oh, so I I love Asian food. I love all Asian cuisines. So like absolutely just my favorite, you know. Oh, absolutely. Some of the most of the like it's some of the most like complex flavors. Oh, uh I love mastery it. of fermentation cuz like fermentation, yeah. things that are fermented have like such a distinct flavor profile mm-hmm. and the way that it's mixed and the all of the vegetables that are that are yes. used and it's so comforting there's just something so it comforting really about it yeah well, so we can't we because of where we are geographically there's not a lot of great f- asian food around yeah, here yeah yeah and i miss it so much so i've been on this like constant you know on this like journey to try to learn to make it and it's really hard <laughs> So it's not like I'm making stuff that's like, you know, inedible, but it I acknowledge that it isn't right. But I right. need him to reinforce that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's understandable because it's that's, you know, when we grow up in different um, culinary traditions to pick up completely different skills it takes yeah. a lot of effort and there are a lot of fantastic cookbooks out there. There are, oh, yeah. I love some of the Instagrammers and the TikTokers mm-hmm. who, you know, were oh, raised I've been learning Asian so cuisines. much from oh, TikTok, yeah. like so much in the kitchen from TikTok. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, but, but isn't it so funny the way that you get that innate skill set that then it's really hard. So like when I don't, I, I try to be inventive in the kitchen and I try to keep it interesting. You know, like anybody, I've got right. recipes on rotation, you know, dishes I make over and over. But like I, I really try to switch it up as often as I can. 
But isn't it so funny that, you know, when you can't, you just don't have time to think about what to make and you just need to like put food on the plate that we tend to default. And for me, you know, obviously the default is Italian food and I don't, because I don't have to think about it. Yeah, it's autopilot. it just happens. Yeah. And isn't it funny how we get that innate sense? And I I'm, I feel like that must vary, you know, culture to culture, like the thing that you default to, that you can create those flavors without thinking about it. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so cool. That is kind of cool. Yeah, it is. It's, it's like, because yeah, you're right. You're not thinking too hard of it. It's something that you're used to. It's whipped up. And it's usually ingredients that you always kind of have on hand because it's right. the it's the comforts. It's the it's the right. per usual, so to say. Yeah. And you don't yeah. have to think like, oh, well, like, what is this missing? Or like, oh, you know, I, I feel like there's a flavor. I just don't know. You know, the complexity isn't right. Or, or there's a layer to this flavor. I don't yeah, know. You're not following like a strict You're just recipe. like, I know all the things that go in this pan. And I know what it smells like and like now it's right so eat it. I think you know? that was that was the hardest part of like trying to learn because like I have so like my dad's side of the family um had more of an Italian gene mm-hmm. or like not Italian genes like they had like my great grandfather came from Sicily it's my only mm-hmm. uh, Italian relative uh he passed away when I was an infant so I never really got to know him but it's kind of interesting and I was talking to friends about this the other day where I don't know if there was when families like because I come from a very mixed background like my dad he was white he was Italian German and Irish his grandmother who had married the Italian immigrant was German and Irish but she learned to cook Italian food for her husband so I do and then what had happened was my mom is black and like that was what the food that she grew up with was a lot of like you know we made an african chicken stew it was lots of collard yeah. greens black eyed peas okra uh there was a fried catfish with pine nuts that we we would make on my grand on my grandparent my mom's side yeah. uh, so but like she learned to cook italian food for her husband who grew up with it. So I was talking to my friends. I was like, with with mixed families, Mm -hmm. do do the women just kind of make what the husband grew up with? Like, was there a time when like the women's job was to take care of the husband? And so what had happened kind of by default was like, you know, I only have my great grandfather was Italian. I never knew him. I, I don't necessarily identify too much, but that was a lot of the food that I had grown up with were, were interesting takes on Sicilian. Cause that's even an argument. Like I published my, uh, you know, tale of two stuffed peppers yesterday. Yeah. And I saw that. It was like I grew up in a world where my Italian stuffed peppers were just bread, parsley, garlic, and uh Parmesan. Yes. Yeah, no right. meat, not rice and cheese or anything. And I had stuffed peppers at another like Sicilian family's house and I was just like, what is this? Is this a variation? Did you come up with this? Is this like a new way to make stuffed peppers? But lo and behold, I was like the only person uh, that like was eating stuffed peppers with just just the bread. Uh, But it's kind of funny. Like, so now it's like reconciling with my husband trying to like i'm i'm Whoa, you know yeah i'm i'm kind of going back into my own repertoire of cooking because there were some things there were german dishes that my great-grandmother would make so i do know a few yeah. german dishes there's lots of like i still luckily have my grandfather so there's a lot of like 
uh, Southern food that he makes a lot of um, from the African diaspora, like some Caribbean influences, some African influences, and also some like specific to North Carolina indigenous um, influences with the cooking. So I'm like very fortunate and lucky to have that. But, but as a, as a person who's now learning more about food, I'm like, I need to bring this well, together and make sense yes. of it and, but <laughs> and no, also but I keep it alive. That. Yes. And, but the other great thing too, is that like, there's so much, it all just sort of blends together and there's all this crossover. So I, you know, I think, yes, I think that there are, I think it's very likely that, you know, your great grandmother had a whole host of flavors and dishes and like traditional things that she had grown up making that, she, you know, maybe weren't passed down through your family because her husband wanted, you know, Italian food. He wanted and his I, Italian food, I yeah. I get that. My father also wanted Italian food, which my mother, God love her, never mastered. Oh. So, <laughs> no, my mom is actually a great cook, but she yeah. did not conform to the like, we but, only eat Italian oh, food. That's, but, yeah, but it's it's... Yeah. Well, but like my grandmother had, there were recipes, things she made that felt like they belonged to her, but that I like, we would later find out like, that's not an Italian recipe at all. Like Chris uh-huh. Chickies. So my, she was like famous for her Chris Chickies, which are like a puffed cookie. It's a cookie. It's like this, it's almost pasta dough, but it's like a little eggier and you turn them, you like cut them into strips and cut a hole in the middle and then turn it in. You remember when we were little girls and you would do like, did you ever do like a topsy tail where you like flip your hair into your own ponytail? Oh, it's like with curly hair? No way. It would turn into a knot. recipe for disaster. (laughs) (laughs) No, there were things that like my hair could not do what other people's. I couldn't do a French braid. I couldn't. There was none of that. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Well, so, but I always think of it as it's that motion. And I will tell you as as somebody who did like, uh, you know, did get topsy chain, I don't think it matters the consistency of your hair that it hurts anyway. And I don't know why mothers do it to their daughters. Everyone's (laughs) stop doing that but anyway so so uh it's that but it's that motion but and then you deep fry and it like puffs up right but so she would make these chris chickies for um and i I might be saying that wrong i don't know that's what we called them chris chickies but so um she would make them for every event and she would like bring them if she was invited to a party that's she like a tub of them and they were like her thing but I found out later that like I, I, that's Polish. They're Polish. What? They're not wow. Italian at all. So I don't know where she learned to make them, and I don't know if she like picked that up somewhere or had it and then like made it her own or what. Like I don't know. But it it it, it like there's so much crossover, you know, and and different ways that flavors kind of meld together. And I think about that a lot when I think about like where ingredients come from and where they're native to. So like. Right. So much of what we grow in the United States and what we think of as the flavors of the United States aren't the flavors of this land at all. You Absolutely. Know? So, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and so it's it like even our the foundation of cuisines is often like in, especially in the United States, you know, because we don't really have our own like we're, like the it, it's just this mishmash of all these different flavors that we brought over thinking like well this would taste good with this and so we'll import that from there and import that from there you know oh yeah and it, it's a uh, it it becomes uniquely american inherently because yes. america is also just like a very young country so right and our food culture is young too yeah yeah so when you do you have a default like when you don't want to think about like what's for dinner is there like a flavor spectrum or a palette or whatever that you feel like you default to 
Oh my goodness. That is a really good question. The default, I feel like it always needs to be some protein, a starch and a vegetable. I always need to have this Trinity. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know why. And you know, it's sometimes it's really just basic. I'll hit like, like potatoes. It's always a really good go-to really easy. I could just put them on a, like a tray, a baking tray, Mm -hmm. shove them in the oven with like a little bit of olive oil. Maybe if I'm feeling ambitious, I'll dice up some, uh, like an, uh, an onion, yeah. And I'll like throw some rosemary on there. And I don't know if like that's a breakfast thing. Cause like, I love, <laughs> I like at a diner, I would just like, no matter what time of day, I would always get breakfast. So I really just love like home fried potatoes, yes. like the breakfast style. So I do find myself like making a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's chicken, which is also just easy lemon garlic or just like, oh man, sometimes I'm like, if I'm feeling extra lazy, I just squirt the barbecue sauce bottle. Yes. Right in there. Just whatever. Not even marinade, just (laughs) just plain old chicken and barbecue sauce. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And then like, just like, like green beans or like a can of corn or yeah. So that's, that's if I'm like on, on true autopilot, but, um, I gotta eat. What do we got? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the, the go-to. Do you, what's your go-to? I know you said Italian, uh, you're usually cooking something Italian, but is it? My like true default is probably just like chicken parm oh that's like a if, good one if i really can't and it's and because it's also one of those things that like there's always chicken hanging around and there's always pasta and there's always mozzarella cheese like it's just one mm-hmm. of those things that's just like always in my house but i've been working really hard to like try to expand like to uh, so this is an interesting thing so i we um have become a, a hunting and fishing family um oh. so i have a freezer full of venison and I've been working really hard to master cooking a new protein, which like at this point in my life, I don't I didn't expect to find myself, you know, learning to master a new protein. But oh, it's my been goodness. Really fun. And I'm like getting really good at it. <laughs> so That's awesome. Yeah. Like venison, I feel like, gosh, um, you know. Even when I think of venison, I still feel like my great grandmother, like if she did get some venison from a neighbor who had gone Mm -hmm. hunting in the Pine Barrens, uh, it again, just get thrown in spaghetti, uh, (laughs) which I don't know if that's the appropriate way, but that's where that's my experience with it. I mean, well, that's sort of you could throw anything in spaghetti. That's true. Yes. (laughs) I mean, she did rabbit as well. So rabbit and spaghetti, which is surprising, uh, surprisingly good. But uh, so what's your favorite venison dish that you've been making? Uh, Well, right now I have a venison roasting. I can smell it. I'm (gasps) downstairs in my office and I can smell this roast going in my oven. It's been at like 220 in my oven since, you know, 11 o'clock this morning. So it's starting to smell like very good in here. Oh, Um, that's awesome. I've, I've also been making like venison and carne asada i've been trying to use it in different so like this is what i'm talking about this crossover right yes venison is this like deeply ancestral to the land i mean flavor right right? and i'm trying to use it in in ways that i don't i don't know if it ought to be but it's working so (laughs) so like i made the other night i made um like venison and broccoli like you would make chicken and broccoli so it was like Poison sauce and oyster sauce and soy sauce and like I just I don't know and then I we ate it over rice and it was great and I like sliced it real thin. I've used it in pho 
like oh. made, you know, like Vietnamese pho with venison instead of beef. Wow. Um, I've used it for yeah, like pretty much anything you can think. I've made like a ragu out of it. This roast is just going to like melt in your mouth. It's going to fall apart because oh, it's, it's so like low and it's slow. It's like it's a lean but gamey kind of yeah. meat. Yeah, that sounds that sounds it's, so good. I know. And I've been like, I want people to let me write about this because it's not because venison has like a weird reputation where, you know, there's like. A billion people in the it's like I think it's like literally close to a billion who regularly eat venison, not because there's that many hunters. There's only like a couple hundred thousand hunters in North America, but because those hunters, you know, are not eating everything themselves. So they're like, you know, that many people, that many meals are being eaten. Oh, anyway. wow. But um, they like but but still somehow, you know, in the grander scheme People have either not eaten venison ever or they have maybe eaten it once or they – the word people always use is gamey. Always. But the, like gamey is, can be a good thing. But it's not. But, like it's not like, gamey. No, no, no. But, I mean it's not gamey. I mean oh, I think – but it's not I, gamey because I, I enjoy gamey like food. I love food. turtle. I love yeah. like – Yes. I think – I think lamb is gamey. That's what I – so uh, oh, this is okay. an interesting thing about how different people interpret different flavors, right? That's true. I find, I find lamb gamier than anything. I don't know if I feel like turtle is gamey. Really? I don't know that that's the word I'd use. I don't know. Like, it. Well, okay, so what is gamey? Also, uh, how me- are you eating turtle? Like in turtle soup? Yeah, like turtle soup. There's yeah. also turtle steak. I mean, mostly it's turtle soup. But like I tracked down this place like up in Bucks County and it's called Pineville Tavern. Uh-huh. And they have like turtle soup with gigantic hunks of oh. turtle. Okay, so my boyfriend will tell people, people are always like people from other places who don't yeah. know that turtle soup is a thing will are like shocked when he tells them, you know, yeah, when we were little kids, we would catch snapping turtles and then sell them to the restaurant, you know, and they, they you would like go to the back door of the restaurant with your turtle. Yep. <laughs> yep. Which and I be like, great job, yeah. kid. Like, here's 20 bucks, <laughs> which they should be getting way more than 20 bucks. But also it's like it was technically illegal, but everyone did yeah. it. Everyone <laughs> did it. It was because the thing was, was like, what was it? It was like. I guess you were giving them the turtle and then like somehow they were communicating that they were technically buying a soup from you or like they were, I don't know know where the loophole was, but everybody did it. Yes. But like kids were catching snapping turtles and then restaurants were making turtle soup. Like that's what I know. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I don't, I'm sure you probably couldn't do it today. I think if you went to the back door of the Pineville Tavern and you were like, I got this turtle, they would be like, uh, you should put that back. (laughs) Because it's not just getting the turtle. They need to do – there is a process where uh, you need to drain the turtle because it's essentially just like – got a like inherently muddy uh (laughs) there's like draining the there's a certain way to drain the blood there's a certain way to drain and clean the turtle like you actually have to i think like immerse the turtle in some type of solution for a very long time before you are able to just be like here's some soup like here you go make make this soup there's a whole process it seems like very complex but that's beside the point because we were talking about gamey foods which yeah to me to me i feel like gamey kind of aligns with a food that is some type of red meat some type of dark meat or red or dark meat that has a kind of woodsy rustic taste and a kind of tougher texture 
than like say chicken or a fish yeah. or so it's like a flavor texture to me but i don't know what's your interpretation right. of gamey well, so i uh, for me gamey is more is less about texture and more like that musky flavor in the back of your mouth like that like so okay. when i eat lamb or i mean it's like obviously mutton is gamier than lamb but like i what i feel like is gamey is that like yeah, I don't know what word to use other than musky. And I don't mean that in a bad way because I, li- I like that that flavor. Right, But it's right. like – Yeah. Like something with almost like a – I'm like trying to conjure a gamey <laughs> flavor in my mouth so that I can describe it. But something almost almost smoky. Like just this – you know that like oh. weird sweetness almost that's like when you eat a smoked yes. food, it's like that, that layer below the like smoky wood flavor. There's that sweetness. That's like okay, yeah. It's like it's like riding the line between sweet and something else. Does that make sense? Is this am I? That does make sense. That does is make this sense. nonsense. Yeah, this might be it, nonsense. It makes, Maybe my tongue no, is no. broken. I don't know. <laughs> it, it makes it makes the the spectrum of gamey a little bit more narrow, so that it becomes yeah, yeah it's, it's more specific. But I think, but I also think that's interesting when we talk about cup flavors that are like something beyond sweet or or you know sour or whatever like but words like that we constantly use to describe food like gamey or rich or oh yeah like what like the way that different people and different palates interpret that and and what we like lean toward and what tastes you know what like what triggers something for us and i think kind of getting back to our like grand oh, yeah. topic here <laughs> that that is all driven by this memory right that's oh, all yeah. driven by like Things we ate that made us like not only tasted good, but like made us feel good when we were growing up or, or, you know, as adults, when we were like experiencing something amazing or like something we wanted to remember or sometimes even something we don't want to remember, you know, but like I think flavor is so intimately tied to like emotion and feeling that it's just it's like like, it's just fascinating, you know. Even seasons and moments can become a flavor in and of itself. Like when someone says it tastes like Christmas, it's like, oh, does it taste like the kind of spiced, like, right? Like I think of, oh, does it have kind of like a spruce tip taste or does it have kind of a uh, nutmeg, cinnamon, Mm -hmm. uh, aromatic? Or when someone says, like, oh, this tastes like a summer barbecue, it's like, oh, these are really distinct moments but people use them to describe describe flavor which is always fun and that's really universal right like watermelon tastes like a summer it tastes like summertime yeah it does yeah and like to me like peaches taste like summertime yeah you know my tj says all the time that things taste like christmas he also (laughs) tells me that things taste like and i think what he i think for him so for me when something tastes like christmas yeah it's like sprucey or like nutmeggy for yeah. him, pretty much, I think pretty much anything with like cinnamon and cardamom in it tastes like Christmas to him. <laughs> but um, and that all might be relative too to whoever yeah. is uh, like whoever's holiday because some people well, might think like, sugar cookie you... or snickerdoodle or right. Well, and like people in Australia, you know, who are having Christmas in summertime might oh, have yeah. completely different you know associations to like what is the flavor associated with Christmas. So oh, that's yeah. it, right? Like we think about like. It of course it's subjective and individual because it has to do with what your memory and your experience is of Christmas or of anything. Yeah, well, 
Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> all of your food memories and for like making me think differently about like, oh, what are my food traditions and where are they coming from? And also what food traditions am I going to like create? What food memories will I create with my family based off yes. of the memories that I've had? Yes. I feel like, you know, I say all the time that feeding people is my like love language. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that that's what it goes back to, right? Like we we are fed by people who love us and we remember that. Thank you so much to Kate Morgan for sharing your food memories, perspectives and inspirations with us. Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society, and the song is appropriately titled South Street Strut, a little nod to my Philly folks out there. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to the Amuse-Bouche newsletter on Substack, where every week I share even more food stories and recipes meant to delight and amuse. It's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips, so consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks. If not, you can support me by liking, commenting, and sharing my work. You can also follow me personally at at Says on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of Amuse-Bouche, feel free to slide into my DMs or just hit me up on Substack. 